Thanks for tuning in to the weekly FBC Athens podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Kyle Henderson. If you have anything else you'd like to know about our church, feel free to check out our website, lovingtheworld.com. Enjoy the message. So one of the benefits of planning sermons long in advance is when you get to a week like this, you're not grappling, trying to figure out what you need to talk about because we kind of planned it. We just kind of assume that God's got us in his mind and heart, and he leads us in, in kind of those moments. And so uh, we're in this sermon series about people meeting Jesus in the book of Matthew, these kind of pivot moments when people meet Jesus. And um, Leanna just read that text. We call it, it's Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And when he comes into Jerusalem, kind of riding on the back of this uh, donkey, a lot's going on as people are gathering around and watching and trying to figure out who Jesus is, and they're making some critical decisions about Jesus in that moment. A lot of people around us struggling, a lot of people trying to figure out what they're hearing and how they're sorting through all those words. Can you imagine being in that crowd that's described there in Matthew chapter 21? It says in Matthew chapter 21, at the very end of that passage that Leanna read, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? You can imagine they didn't have television cameras. They didn't have a way to see something had happened, something was happening. Maybe people are gathering. Some people are yelling, and people at the back are going, what's going on? What, what, what's, who, you know, up there? And you can imagine that a few people, the people that were closest to Jesus, closest to the kind of parade route as they're looking and seeing what's going on, are making a snap decision. Now, this isn't the first time we've ever seen the crowd in the book of Matthew, but it's the moment that the crowd really sees Jesus in Jerusalem, and they must have been trying to figure out what was going on. I mean, why is he riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, if you and I saw a guy riding a donkey, we might have all sorts of opinions, right? Because we have opinions about donkeys. We've been taught in our popular culture some things about donkeys. Maybe he was really depressed, right? Because if it was blue and he lost his tail, it'd be Eeyore, and he's just totally bummed out, right? And so he's riding in because he's, he's not feeling very well. Or he might be riding to a party because he'd seen Shrek, and he'd seen that happy-go-lucky donkey in Shrek. Or maybe they'd experienced some donkiness in people around them, and they thought maybe he was just being really stubborn. Because those are things that we associate with donkey that maybe they didn't then. In fact, in the Old Testament, donkeys are the symbol of freedom and power. And even they understood when they thought about it that it referred, see it up there, see so I mean, say to daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you. It was a regal animal. It was the animal that a king would ride in. So it's amazing, like Jesus arranged it, right? He had already figured it out. There's these people, go get the donkey, already arrange it with them. If they ask you, say, the master sent you, they'll send you the animal. They did. Jesus gets on the donkey, rides into town. The people in the crowd asking What's going on? What did we see? And they conclude, verse 11, 
And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. So a long time ago when I was planning out this sermon, the thing that I wanted to talk about is the crowd. The crowd. Now, this has been a week for crowds, hasn't it? I don't know. How many of you have been to Walmart? No? How many of you have kind of seen the crowds kind of on social media and on TV and people kind of running over there and running over there? I mean, what a week for thinking about the crowd. Where are you in the crowd? The problem with the crowd is the crowd gets it about half right. See, the people in the back asking the question, everybody asking the question, who is Jesus? Well, they're right that he is a prophet, but they missed the key communication that he was the king. I mean, he picks on purpose the symbol they should have known. Can you imagine what would have happened that week if people would have lined up and said, the king has come. Let's follow this king. But that's not what happened. Somebody in the crowd began to pass the word. Oh, it's a prophet. It's, that, it's just that prophet from Nazareth. He's not the king. I mean, there was this clear communication that Jesus was proclaiming. He was coming in a very particular way, and they flat missed it. Because it was easier to latch on to something than to latch on to the whole story. When we were looking for colleges for our oldest son, Lance, we went all around. We traveled to all sorts of different places. We went to Oxford in England. We went to Harvard, and we went to MIT, and we went to Stanford, and we went to Princeton, and we went to Rice, and we went to UT, and we went to Baylor. I mean, we, went to, we just went lots of different places looking at schools. When we were on the West Coast, Lance and I were out visiting. He was visiting Stanford, really interested in Stanford. And every place we would go, I would ask a question during some tour. You know, they had those freshmen that take you on tours. I'd always ask some question about, well, tell me about faith on the campus. Boy, I got laughed at a lot. I got smirked at a bunch. I got eyes rolled at me a bunch. Like, oh, you country bumpkin. I can't believe you would even think about coming here and you still believe in God. When we got to Stanford, Stanford has one of the most beautiful chapels on any campus in America and just desperately empty. And I asked about it, and they said, oh, there isn't any faith on this campus. So while we were out there, we ended up making a side trip to USC, University of Southern California, or University of Spoiled Children. just depends on how you look at it. So we went out to USC. Now, the reason I wanted to go to USC is because Stephen Sample was the president of USC. And I'd heard him speak at a Christian conference, and he'd given his testimony how he'd been born again and was a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And he was really serious about it. And of all the top-level universities, he was the only born-again Christian that I could find that would talk about it. And I thought, well, this might be really interesting. Maybe faith was possible on that campus, and it certainly was. His leadership from the top made a big difference. They had one of the leading philosopher thinkers in Christianity, Dallas Willard, taught on that campus. And so when we went to visit there, it was so interesting. His talk, Stephen Sample had given a talk, and at this conference he talked about an idea called thinking gray, to think gray. And that is to not decide something until you need to decide something. Instead, to hold your mind purposely open, to be an open-minded person. 
So because that's not the way most people are. Most people get a little bit of information, and then they lock into that information, and then they begin to defend that position. He says, there are very real dangers to effective leadership. One is that the leader forms opinions before it's necessary to do so, and in the process closes his mind to facts and arguments that may subsequently come to his attention. You ever done that? Heard a little bit and grabbed onto it? Boy, that's what Facebook's really good at, right? Here's a little bit of information. Ah, people just run that way, right? This is the crowd. You hear a little bit, and you plunge in, and you grab onto that thing, and then you become defensive, almost immediately defending your position. That's what the crowd does. What would have happened if the crowd around Jesus, if just somebody had said, I think he might be the king. That's not what happened. He's, he's a prophet. I don't know if you met these guys this week. I met these guys this week. How many of you met Dr. Max C. Starkloff this week and Dr. Willem Krusen? Okay, now this is rare that it happens to both services that... Like, only the people that I've taught about it, my wife raised her hand, it's like the rest of you didn't know this. Okay, you should know these guys. This is their week. I mean, they were doctors in 1918 during the great flu pandemic in America. And they represented two different cities. One, Dr. Max Starkloff, was head of the health department in St. Louis, Missouri. To those of you who watched the early service, I said it wrong. I said Kansas City, Missouri in the first service. That's where I was born, and I think it's more important. But it wasn't St. Louis. I mean, Kansas City, it was St. Louis. He was the head of the health department. Now, he was a really young doctor and unknown. Now, Willem Kruiser was a prominent official, a prominent doctor and leader in Philadelphia. And they both were faced with the same situation. Military men coming back from World War I had brought the flu around, and it was everywhere where there were soldiers, and it had begun to spread, and lots of people had gotten sick pretty quick, and they were both facing the same moment of what to do. Now, Max, he decided that what they should do is stop public gatherings. Now, the business community lost their mind. They hated this idea. The people in sports hated this idea. Churches hated this idea. But he went and talked and led and got to other leaders and eventually convinced them, and they all agreed to stop the meetings. Now, Dr. Willem Krusner, on the other hand, said, it's going to be fine. It's okay. We can go ahead and have the big parade. So 200,000 people came to Philadelphia on September the 28th, 1918, because it was a patriotic parade. I mean, you can't be against patriotism, right? We all got to get out. We got to cheer. We're trying to raise money for the war bonds. And so they all met together. Just 72 hours after the parade, all 31 of Philadelphia's hospitals were full, and 2,600 people were dead by the end of the week. Now, if you want to know why people are making the decisions up above, is because they don't want to be villain. They don't want to be villainified. They don't want to be the one that hesitated and didn't make it. Because here's the upshot of what happened. 
So the dark line, that's Philadelphia. And the dotted line, that is St. Louis. And this red line is the moment that they stopped meeting in public places in St. Louis, the dotted line. The dotted line holds it down. The other line goes way up. It overwhelmed the public health system. And twice as many people died as a percentage in Philadelphia as died in Kansas City. So you can see what was going on. A young, upstart doctor sees the truth, what he should do. He steps up. He takes it front on. He leads. He's able to impact his community. He's a huge hero. At his death, everybody comes out and says he saved our city. Everybody talks about him. He's got a beautiful headstone. It's engraved this work that he did in this particular moment. He's remembered for what he did. Because the crowd was all saying to him, just go on. All the prominent people, the important people, the moneyed people, go on. And he's like, no. What happens when somebody stands up and challenges everybody to rethink? Because the crowd wants to hear what it wants to hear. So Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, and people come, and they come to listen to him. They come up to the temple, and Jesus is teaching there. It says every day he's teaching there. And if you go back and read all the things that he taught that final week, we get some of the great teachings of Jesus. And some of the things that we learn that Jesus is teaching on that final week is that to follow Jesus is to die to yourself. To follow Jesus is to become the servant and wash the feet of the people around you. To follow Jesus means that you're not the top. You're going to be the servant to all. Now, it's really interesting, the crowds, that when they came there and heard Jesus, it says that the crowds were astonished at his teachings because what they heard is what they wanted to hear. They didn't bother to listen all the way into Jesus' message. They didn't bother to listen to everything. They heard the things they wanted to hear. We're better than others. They heard that they're going to win. And they were ready for Jesus to lead the revolt. They just sorted it out, decided what they wanted to hear. Now, this is the way people are. This is the way you are. You're already predisposed. You already have ideas in your head. And when you hear something, you take that idea and you bring it up against the next to the things you've already decided. And you go, oh, I don't like that one. I mean, Jesus comes to you and says, hey, maybe you have too much stuff and you might want to give some of it away. Maybe you could live on less and you could share with more. And people go, yeah, no, I don't want to live on that. I don't want to do that. I mean, Jesus comes to you and says, maybe what you should do is not try to be out in front. Maybe you should be a servant. Maybe you should help other people. Maybe you should be a little more humble. It's like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. Because you already have in your mind the way Jesus is supposed to act and what he's supposed to do for you. This is really a problem because the crowd comes around you and is whispering in your ear all the time. This is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. After 1945, at the end of the war, people came back from the war and they were totally confused. 
I mean, and at the 1900s, the beginning of the 1900s, people thought that science and intelligence was going to rise all along the way, and people were going to keep getting better, and we were going to solve all the problems of the world. And then the first war comes, and it, it, everything falls apart, and they're like, well, maybe that was a hiccup. And then the second world war comes, and then they start learning about the Holocaust, and they were like, how could this many people do that much evil? So people came back trying to figure out what was going on. How did the crowd become this powerful? Why would people just give in and do those kind of terrible things? And one psychologist was trying to design an experiment where he could test the power of a crowd on a person. The, 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 the guy's last name is Ash. So he, he designed it. He said, okay, here's a line on the left. There's three lines on the right. And he'd put people in a room, and he would show them the first line, and then he'd put up a card next to the line and ask the group, one at a time, which line on the right matches the one on the left? Okay? So we're going to play the experiment for just a moment right here. I need to tell you, this isn't an optical illusion. This isn't some weird test. It's just really supposed to be straightforward. Can you look at the line on the left and tell me which line on the right matches it? All right, all those that think that line A matches the line on the left, all those that think line B matches the line on the left, all of you that think line C matches the line on the left. Okay, as far as I could tell, everybody got it right, 100% got it right. It's supposed to be an easy test. And so what he would do is he'd bring people into the room, and he'd fill a row with people, and the only person in the room taking the test was the last guy in the last seat. And he would do it sometimes this way, in which he didn't care. He would just ask people to answer the question honestly. And when people answered the question honestly, only about 1% get it wrong. Some sort of hiccup, some sort of, you know, malfunction. They meant to say B, they said A, whatever. Because it, it changes, you know, you change the lines. It's the same test over and over again, different versions of it. But Almost everybody gets it right almost every single time. Now, if you change one thing, if the actors, all the people in the first row, if they all collude together and they all give the wrong answer, so in our example, they all say A, 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 and we get to the last guy, what does the last guy say? 37% of the time, the last guy says A. A third of the time, a little more than the third of the time, the last guy falls under the pressure of the crowd and says the clearly wrong answer. And you're like, <laughs> I would never be that person. I would stand up for the truth. I would tell. Of the people that they did the test with, 75% of them gave the wrong answer at some point during the test. They couldn't overcome the bias of the crowd. All of you that think you're not influenced by the crowd are deluding yourselves. You better be paying real attention to what the crowd is saying and how you just fall into what the crowd is saying and how you parrot what the crowd is saying and you just take things from other people and you just make them your own without any independent thought. Those people sat under the teaching of Jesus and they missed it because they weren't listening to Jesus. They were listening to each other. 
And crowd is so dangerous because the crowd yearns for power over others. The function of the crowd is to make everybody behave, make everybody the same, to not stick up too high, to bang you down into alignment. It's bad. In chapter 26, we hear at the end of the story of the week, that last week of Jesus' life, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, and a mob shows up. And in fact, it's the word, the crowd. Now, Matthew had lots of words he could have used to talk about a group of people. The word that he uses here in all these examples is the word oxlos, which when I was studying Greek was easy for me to learn because I could think of it just a bunch of ox, just a bunch of cows, a bunch of them just, you know how a bunch of cows are, just following each other aimlessly. One goes out and they all follow him like there's something over there. I mean, they're just oxlos, the crowd. The oxlos come. He uses it as a character all the time in his book. And so the oxos come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that they're there, and they're armed, and they're ready to come get Jesus. And Jesus says to the oxos, am I leading a rebellion that you come with me with swords and clubs to capture me? I've been teaching in the temple all week long out there in the open. Why do you have to come to me at dark? How could the crowd have thought he was a prophet turn on him that quick and come at him with clubs? Because Jesus stepped out of line. Jesus didn't conform. He didn't do what everybody else wanted him to do. He didn't look like they wanted him to look. He didn't act like they wanted him to look. Because some of them did pay attention, and they heard the words about sacrifice and servanthood and dying and following him to the cross. And they didn't want that. And so they said no. Sometimes standing up in the crowd is hard. It's really hard. The crowd captures Jesus. They take him. Peter, it says, follows along behind him. Twice they confront him. Twice he denies Jesus. The last time, those, those people, the crowd, all standing there, went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then Peter began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. It is hard to stand against the crowd. I was trying to find a picture of Mac Starkloff to show you. So I typed it in. I just typed Mac Starkloff. And the first picture I got was the guy on the right. And I knew that wasn't the right guy because I knew this other guy was really old. And so I went, found, I figured out that it was Max C. Starkloff. He was a doctor. I added doctor, and I got the right guy. And I got this picture, and I went and read his story. But then something was tickling in the back of my head, and I went back to say, now that guy's name seems an awful strange connection. And I went and found out the guy on the right is Max C. Starkloff's grandson. Oh, my goodness. Young, strapping energetic guy. When he's 18, he's in a horrible car accident, and he's paralyzed, a quadriplegic from the neck down. He tries to live at home for four years. He lives at home. His mom's trying to take care of him. It becomes totally overwhelming to the family, and so they don't know what to do, and they finally they put him in a nursing home because there wasn't anywhere else that he could go. And he falls into despair and darkness and isolation And he's living there, and he's wanting to die. 
and someone brings him some paints and a really long paintbrush. And he figures out that he can paint with his mouth. And he begins to paint, and he begins to paint a new future. He begins to dream a new dream. He begins to say, wouldn't it be better if I didn't have to live here? Wouldn't it be better for people like me that the crowd didn't believe that we were less than, but that would accept us, would champion us, would love us too? What would it look like to change the world and to bring people like me out of the darkness and into the light? And he began to organize, and he began to talk to people, and he began to change things. And in his city, in St. Louis, it became one of the first cities where there were curb cuts for wheelchair people all through the city. He lobbied. It was the first public transportation system that was entirely wheelchair, wheelchair accessible. He founded an independent living place for people that were quadriplegic, and they pioneered so much of what we know and how we've seen it today. I wonder how many times he was sitting in that nursing home and he was thinking about his grandfather who stood up when nobody else would and did the right thing. And so this guy changes his world because he's willing to step out against the crowd. He had three children, five grandchildren. I love this picture of him eating with his granddaughter with a spoon strapped to his hands. Two of them having a hard time feeding each other and loving each other. And this is him protesting as they were trying to get the laws, the ADA laws passed in the country that people resisted everywhere because of how much it was going to cost to care for people. That's him on the front. What would it be like to stand up out of the crowd? Really interesting. I'll go back to the line experience. If there was one of the actors who told the truth. The last character only got the wrong answer 3% of the time. All they needed was someone to be courageous with them. All they needed was somebody else. We need each other. The greatest danger that we're facing right now is not the virus. The greatest danger that we're facing is social isolation, despair, and fear, and people that are feeling totally alone, and they don't know who's going to take care of them, and they don't have much family, and they don't have many friends, and they're like, what's going to happen if I get sick? Am I just going to get left to the side? Is somebody going to care about me? And this is the moment that we'll have to decide if we're going to follow Jesus all the way, and we need some courageous people. In the study that he, Ash, did, 95% of the people defied the majority at least once. You have it in you to stand up and be courageous in the world and to challenge the crowd and to push down the ugly gossip and the hurtful words and the life-sucking culture that we're in and to say, no, that's not the way the world has to be. You have it in you. What would have happened if one of the other disciples had gone with Peter into that courtyard and they'd stood there together and they'd said, yes, you're right. We're with Jesus. And they'd have told all those people in that courtyard about who Jesus really was. What would have been different for all the people that were in that courtyard? 
that might have been told the story of Jesus. Instead, what they learned is that Jesus' followers are abandoned their posts at the worst possible moments. What would have happened if they would have stood strong together? Boy, the crowd is easily persuaded. By the end of the week, it says that the high priest was able to sway the crowd. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. It's easy for the crowd to lose focus. I showed you that early chart about Philadelphia and St. Louis. It's really interesting. I really want, I'm kind of the person that I want to see all the data. <laughs> it's like I need to see the underlying data. I want to see the charts. I want to see the graphs. I want to see all the numbers. It's like, you can make charts look better if you don't show the whole chart. That first chart I showed you ends between November and December. See where that gap is? It ended right there as it's going down. What that first chart didn't show you is that about that time, people let their foot up off the gas and decided that everybody could start meeting again together, and the incident of infection went way, way back up because the business community and the theaters and the sports people all said, this young guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they just opened everything back up again, and then it got worse, and they closed it back up again, and then he was proven to be right again. Boy, the crowd is easy to be persuaded, y'all. It's easy to just go along at some point. Do what makes you popular. Do what's easy. But sometimes what we have to do is stand up and be counted for Jesus. And if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to step out of the crowd. It says that the crowd was around um, Pilate, and Pilate was ready to give Jesus back to them and give him, let him free. And he had this other prisoner, Barabbas, uh, a malcontent, um, a usurper of the throne, somebody that was promising that he would overthrow the Roman government. And they're like, we don't want that Jesus. We want that Barabbas. And so they call for Barabbas, and they call for Barabbas. And Pilate eventually says, fine, if you want him, you can have him. And he says, your blood's on your heads. And they say to him, his blood is on us and our children. Now, the word he uses here for all the people is not the word crowd. It's a different word. It's the word laos, and it means individuals. All the individuals there, they took responsibility. They said, it's, it's us. I'm taking responsibility for it. And they spoke the truth at that moment. They decided that they didn't want to have what Jesus had. They weren't going to live that way. They weren't going to lead their families that way. They weren't going to do what Jesus was asking them to do. And I'm pretty sure that those are the people that rejected Jesus and never received him. They're like, no, I don't want that way. In the early church, the church was struggling the first couple of hundred years. The church grew slowly. And then something happened, a plague. A plague happened in North Africa in the third century. It probably wiped out close to a fourth to a third of the Roman Empire. Like, we've never seen anything like that. This is a stunning, staggering amount of death. People that were there described it this way. This is from the Emperor Julian. 
At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them in the roads before they were dead and treading unburied corpses, uh, treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Julian was so angry. He was a pagan emperor, and he was so mad. He tried to organize the pagans to take care of other pagans that were sick, and he couldn't get them to do it because nothing in their culture, nothing in their philosophy, nothing in their thinking taught them to sacrificially love other people. Nothing like Jesus on the cross. And so he said, for it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, that's what they call Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Dionysus, a bishop, described how the Christians, heedless of danger, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, taking food to them, washing their bodies, cleaning up after their mess, preserving their lives. The first sacrifice of Christians must be to make, the first sacrifice Christians must make to care for our neighbors is our convenience as we enthusiastically participate in aggressive sanitation measures and social distancing. This is your gift. This is the way you care for other people. This is the way you say to other people, I want to protect you, I want to help you. But we've got to go even farther than that. We've got to walk into people's lives and we've got to help each other. When all normal services break down, quiet elementary nursing will gently reduce, greatly reduce mortality. Simple provision of food and water, for instance, will allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing miserably. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, does census and demographic studies. If you lived near a Christian during the plague, you had a greater chance of survival because the Christians served. Now, many of those Christians that served got sick and died, but everybody saw. And the explosive growth of the Christian church happened at this moment in history because pagans saw Christians live the way of Jesus when it was going to cost them something. And Jesus is asking you today, Will you step out of the crowd? Will you step out on behalf of others? Will you love people? Will you take care of them? Will you share your toilet paper with them? Did the crowd want you to stay afraid? And Jesus wants to make you loving. Will you step out of the crowd?